You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, and i got to tell you, I'm giddy. Because I love preaching through books of the Bible. I love unpacking them verse by verse. And even though topically we do look at Scripture, even though topically we do march through verses, we're back in Revelation for the foreseeable future. And I am so excited. Revelation 4, if you don't have a Bible, look in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and find Revelation 4 on page 1030. We find ourselves in Revelation 4 after having covered the first three chapters. And I said last week that we might sense after the first three chapters that this book isn't that intimidating. I mean, what's the big deal about Revelation? We, we've been able to wrestle through it, and it's taken some work, but we've, we've hopefully been able to come to a place where, hey, we can read this and understand it. But then as, as Ben read, there's some symbolic representations and concepts, 24 elders on 24 thrones and four living creatures with faces that are lions and oxes and human and an eagle in flight. And maybe some of you are like, I'm out. <laughs> and we are reminded of the fact that Revelation is filled with images. It's filled with symbolism. It's filled with creatures that we are not very familiar with. And so why are chapters four and five important? And and why are they here? And, And why do they find themselves as a kind of placeholder between what's attainable for us and a whole section of this prophecy that is very difficult to process? There is a purpose of these chapters. And it reminds me of one of the earliest movies from my memory. It was a a movie that was the account of a young girl who found herself in a tornado. (laughs) Maybe you think you know where I'm going with this. And she arrived at this magical land. And as she arrived, she was immediately greeted with witches and with scarecrows that could talk and tin men and and, and flying monkeys and lions. and, And her goal after arriving there was to get back to Kansas. That was her goal. That's what drove every step that she took. And and she learned very quickly that it was very important for her to to find the the one person that could make that happen. And that person was the Wizard of Oz. And when she arrived with her friends at that throne room, you, you remember the scene. There's this massive bald head. Interesting. There's fire and there's flames. It's intimidating. But as the, as the scene unfolds, we realize there's this curtain off to the side. The little dog goes over and pulls back the curtain. The person behind the curtain shuts it again. And then the, the voice yells out, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Now, now why did he shut the curtain? Why did he not want them to pay attention to what was going on behind the curtain? Because behind the curtain revealed reality. And the Wizard of Oz did not want reality as he knew it to be conveyed. But we find in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation is the heavenly curtain is pulled back and the one behind the curtain actually invites us in. 
He invites us to take it in, to marinate in it, because what he wants us to understand is actual reality. And so chapters 4 and 5 in Revelation are actually an invitation in to see behind the curtain to understand from heaven's perspective reality. And I would submit to you that's the most important perspective. Because the perspective of heaven is not limited like our eyes are limited, is it? And the whole point of pulling back the curtain for John and for the original audience and for us is so that we can be empowered to be able to experience what God has ordained for us and to conquer and endure. Look at the big idea in your notes. The heavenly curtain is pulled back and the contents are intended to motivate our conquering and enduring. Let's look first of all at verse one and find a helpful resource. Find a helpful resource. Now I wanna camp out on this first phrase because this is going to equip us on how to study the Bible. You see the first phrase, it says, after this. Do you see it in the text? In fact, I would encourage you, underline that, because there's a tool here that John is going to use throughout Revelation that will actually educate us. Remember, we often come to Revelation thinking it's intimidating, thinking it's impossible for us to understand, thinking that we are dependent on models, as we covered last week, or pastors or authors for us to be able to understand it. But what I'm modeling to you is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you and you study the Word of God, that just as you interpret Genesis, just as you interpret Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can use those tools to interpret Revelation. And the phrase that John uses here after this is an important trigger for us. And in fact, let me just pause here and say that there is a, there is a path that we must take to be able to understand this ancient text. And in fact, would you write this down? The original audience and the original author can be described as them then. Would you write that down? The Bible, Revelation in this case, was not written by a 21st century author to 21st century Olathans. The Bible was written in the first century, in this case, to people in that context. That's the them then. We must first evaluate and read scripture in that light. And that means we must understand the language, we must understand the grammar, we must understand the historical context and the culture, and we must start there. See, what often happens is we read this Bible starting with us now. And so if you're drawing this out on your notes, the them then is on one side, the us now is on the other. And we often read this ancient text focusing on us now when we must start with them then. But here's the reality is even if we start with them then, the temptation is to run across to the us now. But there's still additional work. The additional work is to evaluate other scriptures because scripture interprets scripture. Would you write that down? This is what is the, referred to in the Reformation as the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets Scripture. 
And so as we're going through Scripture to be able to make sure that what we think we understand about them then is accurate, we're also looking to see how do the dots in Scripture connect, and that's theology. Theology is not just an academic textbook. Theology is connecting the dots of the facts of Scripture to better understand the character of God, to better understand the human condition, and to be able to connect the story that God has written for creation. And so that's what happens. We start with the them, then, and then we start this arc of looking at the rest of Scripture, connecting the dots. But ultimately, we are reminding ourselves throughout this process that the central figure to this story is Christ. Would you write that down? The central figure to the story is Christ. So if we're trying to get to us now without focusing on the centrality of Christ in our process, we're skipping the most important step. But once we've done that work, now we have an accurate understanding of the text as the Holy Spirit intended it. Now we can get to us now. And so the exercise of after this is actually a reminder of how the authors of Scripture will use phrases to inform and educate the reader. I've got an image up on the screen that you can look at, and there's several passages in Genesis. And the reason why I highlight this is each one of these passages contain the phrase, these are the generations of. And what this phrase does for us in Genesis is actually signal to us what Moses is wanting the reader to understand. And that is, he's transitioning to a new focus or a new section. And so when we understand that the authors of scriptures will use phrases like this to teach and inform, then when we arrive at Revelation 4 and we see this after this, we will recognize that John will use this throughout Revelation to signal to the reader a new vision or section, but not necessarily a historical order. That's so important, beloved. And listen, don't don't get distracted from what I just said. One of the key ingredients for the modern reader to read and understand this complicated book is to understand that John will signal us that a new vision is taking place when he says after this, but not necessarily a historical order. Remember the models that I unpacked yesterday. This will affect how you line up in your understanding of This book. After this is a signal of a new scene or a new vision or a new section, but not a necessarily historical order. Now, once we've had that little kind of training exercise for studying the Bible, now we get to the resource. John says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing, opening in heaven. Now, what John is using here is Old Testament prophetic terminology. Here's some of the passages that talk about a prophet who looked and behold. Zechariah 2, 1 and 5. Ezekiel 1, and 1 verse 4. Jeremiah 4. 23 and 26 in Daniel 7, 6. That that last passage is so important. 
Because the outline of Daniel 7 and how Daniel explains the vision that he saw is the same order that John uses in unpacking the details. That is significant. John is drawing from the Old Testament. He's, he's saying that I am standing in the, the same vein as these Old Testament prophets. And listen, beloved, that actually informs us how to interpret Revelation. The same way we interpret Daniel, the same way we interpret Zechariah, the same way we interpret Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we, we use those same tools to apply them to Revelation. And he says, after this, I looked and behold... There was a door opening in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's back in chapter 1, verse 10, identifying this as whom? Jesus Christ. Christ speaks to John and invites him, commands him, come up here. Man, that's awesome. And do you see how when we're just slowing this down and, and looking at the phrases, how the Bible and the context starts to come alive and we see what's going on. Jesus is inviting John, his disciple, to come up for a purpose. What is the purpose? Look at what it says. I will show you what may must take place after this. The word show you means to make known the character of something. I love that. Listen to this quote. It is not the goal to simply make aware or to entertain. The goal is to reveal the significance and to lead to understanding. Listen, this is the resource of the word. The resource of the word of God is not simply to give us a list of do's and don'ts. How many of us, either now or at some point in our lives, have thought of this ancient book as simply a compilation of do's and don'ts? It's so easy to misunderstand what the purpose of this book is. The purpose of this book is not simply awareness or entertaining stories. The goal is to reveal the significance of the content and that which it points us to, as well as to move us to understanding. That's why Jesus, so many times in the Gospels, asked his disciples, do you not what? Understand. Well, why did he say as the religious leaders were giving their interpretation of the scripture, which was wrong, why did he say, oh, you of little understanding? Because what he was trying to do is remind us that the word of God is intended to show us, to reveal significance about him, about us, and his redemptive story, and to lead us to understanding. Because once we understand, we will live and think and speak differently. What an amazing resource. Our daughter Meg is getting ready to graduate from high school. And those of you who have been through this with a child understand the significance of that transition for all of us, not just for Meg. We've been having very meaningful conversations, especially around the dinner table. And a couple weeks ago, she was just sharing with us some of her fears and some of her realization that she'll be out on her own, that she'll be in a place that doesn't have her parents right there with her, that she will be with friends and with professors that will believe differently than her. And she was expressing that there's some fear bubbling up in her, which is understandable. 
But then we started talking about the importance of studying God's word. Of having God's word be a part of our daily life because this doesn't change. The the same truth that was contained in the first century to the original audience from the original author is for us today. It transcends generations. It transcends culture. My my buddy Adi preached this morning from Genesis in Bucharest, Romania, and the same truths exist there from this book. And so when our daughter goes to Grand Canyon University in Phoenix, several hundred miles away from us, this book will be just as true there as it is here. What an amazing resource this is. But, but, but here's a, an additional application. As we continued the conversation, we were talking about something else. And Meg said, ah, oh, I was reading in Luke 12 this morning. And this and this and this. And it was perfect for what we were talking about. Listen, God has a way of ordering the details of our lives so that the word of God that we're studying has significance, doesn't it, to what we're experiencing. You tell me what other book you can study that this world has to offer that promises that blessing, that promises that in it contain the words of life that in it contain everything that we need for life and godliness. Second Peter 1, 3, there is no other resource. So beloved, listen, the invitation to access this resource on a daily basis is not religion. It's not even duty. It's privilege. Just like we're taking a breath right now. Just like y'all will eat tonight while you watch the game. It is a privilege and a gift to come to this living and active word that shows the significance of God and us and his redemptive history and promises everything that we need for life and godliness and is our help and hope so that when we draw our last breath we will be with him in eternity. What an amazing resource. And that's what John is invited to see in this opening verse. This is the helpful resource. Number two, find the helpful representations. Find the helpful representations. This is where it gets a little crazy. He says, that once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Now that, that in and of itself is not crazy, is it? Well, oh, there's going to be some flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. There's going to be a glassy sea. There's going to be 24 elders, 24 thrones. There's going to be uh, these living creatures, and they have weird faces. What is John talking about? What is the purpose of him seeing this? Well, I think John, here's a statement that will be up on the screen. John is using descriptions to teach more than he is to literally describe. And friends, that, that, that phrase right there will actually, I think, contribute to our understanding of Revelation in a most profound way. The point that John is making is not for us to dig into the literal beings and the literal description that he is giving us. What he's focusing on is that the description is intended to teach. Here's a trigger that we can see in the text. In verses 4, 6, and 7, we see the word translated like. Do you see that in the text? 
In verse 3, we see that it had an appearance. It's the same Greek word that's translated like. And that signals us throughout Revelation that John is intended to teach us by the descriptions that he gives us rather than have us stick in the details. So what is he doing here by describing the throne? He's using the lenses of the Old Testament prophets. There's three representations here that I would encourage you to write down. The first one focuses on the throne. And other Old Testament prophets have referred to the throne in a teaching fashion. You can write down Isaiah 6.1. Some of you are familiar with that. That's the amazing throne room scene that Isaiah describes. Ezekiel 1.26, Daniel 7.9. These are Old Testament prophets that saw visions and in their description of the throne, they're intending to communicate and teach truth. And so John says that this, this throne is, is actually, uh, and the one seated on the throne, had an appearance of jasper and carnelian. These are jewels from the, the ancient world. And around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of emerald. And, and what John is doing here, again, is not causing us to think, okay, what is jasper and what is carnelian? And hmm, that's an interesting rainbow. He's communicating truths through these descriptions. And the truth that he has communicated is that the one seated on the throne is otherworldly. He transcends what this world has to offer. He is magnificent. He is glorious. Then he describes the thunder and lightning. He'll do this again in chapter 8, verse 5, chapter 11, verse 19, chapter 16, verse 18. And what he's doing here is reminding the readers that this God who is glorious and magnificent also judges. The lightning and thunder is, is included in describing judgment and that God does not turn a blind eye to sin. Let that be an encouragement as we look at society around us, but also let that be convicting in our own lives. But what I love is he, he includes the thunder and the lightnings in conjunction with a rainbow. You know what's interesting about a rainbow is a rainbow conveys mercy, doesn't it? You can write down Genesis 9, 1 through 3. And the rainbow at the time of Noah. You'll see in Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11 and 18 through 23, that the, the, the concept of the rainbow communicates new life. And so the one that John is describing is the one who judges, the one who is almighty, who is sovereign, who is all-powerful. He's also merciful. He also conveys new life and is the author of new life. That's awesome, isn't it? But then it also describes a glassy sea. And again, I don't think John is trying to get the reader to see, oh, in heaven there's going to be a glassy, literal, physical sea. Maybe, maybe not, but that's not the point of John. Again, when we go back to them then, we understand that the way that the ancient, ancients viewed the sea was that it was a place of chaos and evil. That's why I think Mark 4 is so significant. When Jesus calms the sea and the disciples respond and they say, what manner of man is this that he can take what we, we believe to be this place of wickedness and chaos and just with a word calms it and makes it peaceful? 
Only God can do that. And so what John is doing by using this description is saying, the one whom I saw is God. So, so, so sit in this for a moment. As the curtain is drawn back, what we see is a God who is presiding over all of the details of history, including our lives. And he is awesome. He is on a throne of might, of power. He also judges. He is the author of life. He is glorious and majestic. And there is no evil, no chaos in this world over which he does not exercise his authority. What an amazing representation. But then there's a second representation that he provides here, and that's the 24 elders. And a lot of ink has been spilled trying to understand who these creatures are. And I think there's value. Some of the conclusions that people have come up with is that these are stars, these are angels. These are Old Testament saints. Some have said, well, these are humans that represent the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles with the number 24. And again, understanding that John's description is not intended to bog us down in the details of the literal scene, but instead teach us what he wants us to understand, I do think there's still value in wrestling with us. And the conclusion I've come up with is that these are angels that are representing the people of God from all time. And I'll unpack that as we march through the text, but one of the ways I have come to this conclusion is the number 24, and that it is 12 and 12, and John again in Revelation 21, verses 12 and 14, will show 12 for the, for the disciples and then 12 for the tribes of Israel. But I think that symbolically is intended to convey the believers of all time, both from the Old Testament and from the New Testament and the New Covenant era. So going with this conclusion that I've drawn, that these are angelic beings, John conveys that they are wearing white garments. Isn't that interesting? You can look later at chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 18, and then also they're wearing crowns, chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 3, 11. What we studied when we studied those passages is that white robes and crowns symbolically are given to believers who conquer and endure. And so here these beings are around the throne. They're on thrones themselves. There's 24 of them, and they are wearing white robes and crowns that are given to those who conquer and endure. And I think what John is conveying here is this. From Adam to the last follower of Christ, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how hopeless it seems, just as in the Old Testament, the New Testament, today and the future, those who conquer and endure will receive the promise from the one on the throne. How awesome is that? So again, don't get bogged down on, are these angels, are these stars, are these humans? That, that's not ultimately the point of this. The point is, the one on the throne keeps his promises. And so that's why Linda had hope. That's why you and I can have hope. No matter what happens as a result of the game today. No matter what happens in your 2023 career, health, relationships, 
No matter what happens in our culture with politics and the military and the economy or natural disasters, no matter what happens, God's people will endure to the end because of him. It's intended to encourage. So there's a representation of the throne, the representation of the elders, and then the third representation is the four living creatures. Verse 8 says that they had six wings, and so does Isaiah 6 too. I think this is further evidence that the elders and these living creatures are angelic beings. And then he uses that term, like, verse 7, like a lion, like an ox, like a face of man, like an eagle in flight. And and again, I think that's further evidence that these are representations, not intended to be focused on literal creatures. And what do they represent? Well, likely all of the created order. Would you write that down? All of the created order, including animals, insects, birds, fish, humans. And if you look at how this scene unfolds as the curtain is pulled back, what are these creatures going to be doing? They're going to be worshiping, aren't they? And that was the whole point of creation. The Garden of Eden was intended to be the, the, the holy of holies in the temple of God, as it were, and to be expanded to the corners of the universe. Remember, what did God tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. Fill the earth with his glory. Fill the earth with his people who dwell with him and him with them. That was the whole point of creation. And then everything went south in chapter 3. But even in that, God's command was to his people to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 9. Be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. Be fruitful and multiply, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And that God revealed to the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2, 14, there will be a day when the glories of God fill the universe. And I think what John is revealing here is that the creatures are already but not yet expressing what all of creation was designed to do and will one day complete. These are representations, friends, and representations give us courage, don't they? Well, immediately in my mind, what comes to mind is, is learning how to swim. And I think most of you have had a similar experience. And I'm young enough to remember those early days when my dad would stand in the water and he would invite me in. And I remember. And all the fears would flood in my mind. I've seen ice drop to the bottom of a glass. I know what happens when you throw a rock in the water. Yeah, it might skip for a few seconds, but bloop. And so you're, you're having all these fears, but what, what does your dad do In order to help you overcome those fears, he gives you representations. He reminds you of his character. He reminds you of what he's done for you in the past. He he gives you all of these images. No, 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 you're going to float. I'm not going to let you sink. And then you're reminded of the fact that, you know what? My dad can swim, and so he probably was like me. and, And somehow he got to a point where he can swim. And those representations are intended to elicit within us courage, to to equip us. 
And I think that's what this throne room scene is intended to convey, is that the throne is almighty sovereign God, that this is his character, that he is the one presiding over creation and all of history, that God will keep his people till the end. No matter what happens to them, his promises are sure, and there will be one day, despite Genesis 3, on to what we're experiencing right now, when all of creation will fulfill their intended purposes. Wow, should that be encouraging. So we find our helpful resource, we find our helpful representations, and then number three, we follow the helpful repetition. You ever think about heaven and think it's going to be boring? I mean, the halo thing, same, same garments. And those of you who are, you know, stylists, that must frustrate you. I mean, this harp thing, like if any of you have ever played strings, you know, there's calluses and blah, bling, blah, bling, blah, bling. And then we were sitting on a cloud, right? I mean, we've got our one cloud. And yeah, we can float around everybody. But see, even in that, what I'm saying is so many things that we come up with with tradition, that are not rooted in the word. And yeah, there might be a verse that we say, oh, look, look there's harps here. There's lyres here. Yeah, but what does the rest of scripture say? Remember the, the path. It's interesting when we see in this passage that day and night, these beings never cease. Isn't that interesting? Whenever they give glory, verse 9, verse 8, they they never cease. The elders, verse 10, bow down and worship, and they say the same thing over and over again, holy, holy, holy. And what's interesting is Isaiah 6, 3 has almost the exact same phrase. Isaiah, written hundreds of years before Revelation thousands of years before today and it says they never cease over and over and over again they're certainly not bored so 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 how can that be how how can it be that this eternal repetition should elicit within us the desire to have these same repetitions in our lives every moment of every day well there's there's actually three ways and i would encourage you to write these down first of all the character of god Look at the repetition of the character of God. Look at what their their content says. He is Lord God Almighty in in verse 8. God Almighty was a a name of God in the Old Testament that the, the patriarchs would rally around, and it gave them courage. In fact, God revealed himself by name, not as Yahweh to Moses, but as God Almighty. And they're saying, Lord God Almighty, verse 8, who was and who is and who is to come, he is eternal, he is sovereign, verses 9 and 10, he lives forever, he never changes. Verse 11, he created all things. Listen to this, everything that happens to them throughout history is a part of God's creation purposes. Amen and amen and amen. So whatever is happening in your life today is God's creation purpose for you to bring him glory. And that drives us to his character, doesn't it? Even if what we're experiencing is painful and undesirable, it is intended to draw him, draw us to his character. And when we begin to see his character as scripture reveals, not as tradition or reason or experience conveys, but when we see him as he is revealed in scripture, it should move us to repetition just like these divine beings. 
Number two, the repetition of proper hierarchy. Proper hierarchy, proper order. Verse nine, glory and honor and thanks be to us. Is that what it says? Now be to him, to the one who is seated on the throne so that anything we get in life should be cast to him in expressions of gratitude and worship. And that's what it says, that they cast their crowns. The crowns are something that they get for conquering and enduring. But hey, who cares about that? I want to give it to him. Oh, you gave me something? I want to give it to you because an expression of worship and gratitude. Oh, when we understand the proper order, and we understand his character. May we join these divine beings in their eternal repetition of worship. And then number three, proper treasure. Proper treasure. Verse 11, oh, you are worthy. Verse 10, we worship. The word worship means to place worth on someone or something. Biblical worship is to place ultimate worth on something or something, something or someone. See, we learn from this repetition and we follow it. See, this is a general representation. Because even as we sang that song, that revelation song, the, the song about worthy is the lamb, we didn't read anything about the lamb in here, did we? And then you've read maybe chapter 5, and you see that there are people from all tribes and tongues and nations, which, by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. We'll study that next week. But maybe even as we can conclude chapter 4, we might be wondering, what about the Lamb? What about Jesus? What about the saints? What about the rest of the story? You have to come back for part 2 